Good evening. I appreciate those testimonies. First Corinthians chapter six. Richard, it's Richard, right? Right here. Let me encourage you on that smoking. I buried my dad at 77 because of emphysema. He'd smoked 68 of his 77 years. I buried a sister at 56, and she'd smoked 50 of her 56 years. So I hang in there, buddy. Do one thing. Get you a little pocket Bible, one of those little pocket Bibles, and wherever you've kept your cigarettes, put that pocket Bible. So every time you, out of, without even thinking, would reach for a cigarette, you'll get the Bible. And open it up and read a word, just a little bit of the Bible, and then put it back where you'd normally go and just continue. And every time you read the Bible promise, it'll strengthen you against that urge. So hang in there. Trust the Lord through it. Amen. Well, good evening. I promise not to preach as long as I did this morning. And my wife is sitting over here thinking, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Because every time he says that, he preaches a long time. See, I, I've, got a, I've got a bad habit. And that bad habit is I preach usually until I'm done. And, uh, but I had a, a threefold message this morning, so I knew I couldn't preach at all. And I wanted to stop. I just, without my long-distance glasses on, I can't see the clock over there. So what? Okay. <clears throat> As long as, as long as you tell me, I guess we are we all right, but please tell me before it's 12 o'clock tonight and we'll be all right. Let's do a little review. This morning, of course, we finished up looking at the faithful family. And what is going to make a faithful family is when you have the father, the mother, and the children performing the ten things. And, of course, this morning we looked at five of those. And if you remember, the first one, was service to God is first. And again, that's not, you have, it's not that you're a preacher. It's just simply the fact that you're living for Jesus Christ 24-7. Uh, wherever you're at, you're living the life of a Christian. You're t allowing biblical principles to, to be that which orders your life. You're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're seeking those things which are above. You're doing all things for the glory of God. And by the way, that is a choice. Nothing in Christianity gets done by accident. It's not something that's done from convenience. It's something that's done by choice. You choose to do these things. You choose to let the Word of God order your life. You choose to do everything you do heartily as unto the Lord, or it doesn't get done. So the first thing is service to God is first. The second thing was spousal duties. Fulfilling your role. We spend too much time, the first couple of years Renee and I were married, I spent all my time thinking about what she should be doing instead of me concentrating on what I should be doing. And when I started thinking about what I should be doing, I found out that that was more than a full-time job taking care of me. And uh, so if I could get every man in here fulfilling the biblical principles that I, I quickly mentioned this morning, by the way, I could spend 10 hours preaching nothing but to you men. And I say I, I can, I have on many occasions done that because I've taught a class at Ambassador Baptist College for, uh, for 25 years on the Christian home. And one whole section, one whole chapter covers men's responsibility. We're to love our wives. We're to choose to love her when she's unlovable. That's what Christ did for us. While we were yet sinners, right, Christ died for us. So we're to love her. 
We're to lead her. And by the way, when we lead her, that means we're leading her in godly principles. Not what I want, what is best for her, what is best for the family, and what's best for me from a biblical standpoint, not just what I want. But we're to labor for her. We're to go out and work and do those things. And let me say this. Uh, my wife taught me a lesson about, I think it was about the third or fourth year we'd been married. And I was working a lot. My wife was raised in a family that had a whole lot more money than my family when I was growing up. And I was working a little more, making some more money, trying to provide better things for her because I thought, you know, that's what she needed. And when I came home one day, she said, Frank, I need to talk to you. And she sent me down and she said this. She said, you need to know that I don't want what you can provide for me. I want you. And if you don't give me you, you'll never be able to provide for what I want. But if you'll give me you, I'll live in a cardboard box if we have to. That was a revelation to my thinking. And I would say, men in this room, most of the wives in here want you. They don't want what you can provide. But we're to labor for them. And like I said this morning, we're to learn her, learn about her, learn what she likes, what she doesn't like. I will challenge you men. Most men in this room, I'd say, do not know your wife's favorite color, what her favorite food is, what her favorite dessert is, what her favorite dress is, what her favorite place to go to eat at, all these different things. Most men don't know that. We'll find out. And then you can do those things that please her more. But anyway, that's free. Spousal duties. Wives, submit. Wives, take care of the house. Wives, help take care of the kids in a way that would be pleasing to your husband. The third thing we talked about this morning was submission to authority. The fourth thing we talked about was strength of emotions. And the fifth thing we talked about, and I sort of double-dipped on this this morning, scriptural love and talking again about, and by the way, men, it's not just our responsibility to love. Yes, a wife is to love, but she's not commanded to love her husband, but she is told to love one another. Now, I mean, that's a biblical principle for all Christians, and that's what sets Christianity apart from Anything else on the face of this earth is to how we are supposed to love people and help take care of people and scriptural love we looked at this morning. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to look at another principle to, tonight. And the sixth thing on our list, number 10, that we should be living and should be teaching our children is sexual purity. Sexual purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please look at verse number 18. Flee fornication. You know what that word flee means? It means run away from. It means, to, it means, have any of you ever gotten caught up in a yellow jacket's nest? Do they have yellow jackets out here? Back home, yellow jackets build nests in the ground, and you run over them with your lawnmower. Next thing you know, about 10 of them are up your britches leg, and you're running across the yard like your pants are on fire trying to get your pants off. Uh, yellow jacket, and it, that's what it means, to flee like you're running from a yellow jacket or a hornet. And get her away from. You know, most people don't do that. Most people don't flee, flee from it. They oh, oh, that pop, let me look at that a little more. That's what most people do. Or they turn into a TV show and something comes up they shouldn't be there. Instead of turning it off, they keep watching. You don't flee from it. We've got to get to the place where we flee from this, where we turn it off, where we stay away from it. If we know it's there, don't watch it, don't read it, don't look at it. Flee from it. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to be. Now, let's go on. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? 
Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, there, uh, therefore in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And I notice that. As a Christian, our body's not our own. It's not for fornication, it's for serving the Lord, it's for letting the Spirit of God have control in our life. And, uh, but it's, it's bad when Christian people don't teach their family about sexual purity. Where Christian people commit fornication on the same level as the world does. There's a couple of thoughts that I want us to think about when it comes to parenting and young people in this area of sexual purity. You need to protect their innocence. It's amazing to see kids five, six years of age that knows more about sexuality than I did when I was a young teenager. I mean, there's something wrong with that. And I was raised on a cattle farm. (laughs) I learned early about those type things. You have to if you live on a cattle farm with a thousand head of brood cows. You, you do. But my point is we need to protect their innocence. And how we do that? By teaching biblical principles. Uh, provide the proper information at the right time. I'll give an interesting story here. My, old, my son-in-law, or my oldest daughter, called me one day and asked me. He said, Frank, do you have any thoughts or any information on how I can teach my children, specifically my sons, I think Kyle was 12 at the time, uh, about the sexual relationship. Because I'd said something in a message about parents, you need, you need to be the one sitting your children down and explaining the sexual relationship. You know, don't let, don't let your peer, their children's peers, and don't let some teacher pervert do the teaching. You do the teaching. And so we talked about it, and I gave him some ideas, and he set his boys down. Uh, he's, he, this was his thought. Kyle's 12, Cody was 11, and Caleb was 10. He said, well, I might as well tell all three of them at the same time because if I tell Kyle, he's probably going to tell Cody, and Cody will probably tell Caleb. So he just got them all three together and <laughs> told all three of them uh, about uh, the information of the sexual relationship. And when he got through, he said, do you have any questions? And Kyle said, yeah, I've got a few. And he said, all right, you can, you can hang around and we'll talk about that. And Cody said, no, I don't have any. And he walked off. And it's like, that's Cody's personality. And here's Caleb at 10. He looked up at his daddy and he said, you mean to tell me you and mama's done this five times? <laughs> <laughs> now, he's, he's over here red-faced and he's 19 now. And <laughs> I think he'd probably have a different response now than he would at 10. <laughs> But what's my point? My point is, parents, you be the one that provides the information. Then you can provide the information that's proper in the proper environment with the proper testimony before your kids of what God gave that relationship to a family for. It shouldn't come from a bunch of uh, peers at their school that you, you have no idea what they have experienced or why they know what they know or some pervert that's setting them up to take advantage of them. You don't want that. You want to provide the information at the proper time. And there's more than many places. Listen, I can direct you uh, one way that you can teach your children. Use Proverbs. 
Use Proverbs chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9. All those chapters talk about the strange woman and the proper way that uh, you should think about the sexual relationship. And there's many places, and we'll look at more. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. You know, every, every young person needs to know, especially no later than the age of 11. And the reason I say 11 is because that is the, about the age where the hormones start jumping in boys and girls, about 11 years of age. Younger, by the way, younger now, nationally, uh, puberty is starting younger uh, than it did 30, 40 years ago. And it's probably because of diet and things like that. But nonetheless, it is. Therefore, parents have got to start about that time, start and explain the changes that are taking place in the bodies of the young people, how they grow, they change. And the kid needs to know what's taking place. They need to understand that when their body starts changing, their thinking starts changing. They start wondering about it. That's always a struggle for a kid during that puberty time when the body starts changing. You know, we teach Wesley, we did, you know, his voice would be up here and down here and that type of thing. And that's something that boys deal with. Girls can change from one week to the next. I remember when uh, my girls were little, they'd come down the stairs to go to church, and I'd say, hey, you can't wear that anymore. Why not, Daddy? I just wore it last week. I said, yeah, but you've changed in the last week, and that's just not proper for you to be wearing now. It's too tight. But different things need to be done, need to protect their innocence, need to provide the information, and you need to promote an insulation. Now, notice, I did not say an isolation. I said an insulation. Now, if you build a house today, if you're smart, you're going to put insulation in it. Why? You want to keep the heat out in the summer, and you want to keep the cold out in the winter, right? And we need to insulate the minds of our young people uh, so their modesty will not be compromised. And one way that we can do that is insulate them when it comes to the media that they watch. Be careful what movies your kids watch. Be careful what movies. Uh, magazines you let them watch just don't don't allow them to watch things that are going to put all kind of suggestive ideas in their mind because I can tell you this an immature mind with a budding body is going to be experimenting to see if what they've watched is true or not and the danger about that is before their mind and their spirit gets all corrected, their body can already be addicted to that which is wrong. So would you insulate their, you know, promote this insulation of their mind, their modesty, take care of these things. Remember, we need to remember anyway, that sexuality is more theological than it is biological. Now let me say that again. Sexuality is more theological than it is biological. And uh, a lot of people, you know, you go to a public school and see what a teacher would say about that. Well, they'd say it's totally biological. It's theological. It doesn't have anything to do with that. That's what the public school would teach when it comes to sexuality. That's the reason why they passed out condoms in the public school. That's the reason why they teach sex ed in the public school. That's the reason why they promote the gay lifestyle and the lesbian lifestyle in the public school. Because for them, theological has nothing to do with sexuality. And I'm here to tell you, God's the one that created it. God knows when it's best. And that's what he teaches. And that's what we should teach. And there should be a sexual purity taught in the home. And by the way, 
I have talked to many young men that's preparing to serve God as preachers, and they have been in a D.C. meeting because they got caught looking at pornography. And I have talked to almost every single one of them, and I've asked them this question. So when did you start looking at pornography? You know what 85% of them tell me? When I found my dad's. That's the first pornography they looked at when they found their dad's. Do you think a young man, if they catch their dad, look at, find their dad's, do you think they are going to look at it? Do you think they'll look at it if they found their dad's? Absolutely. Remember what I said this morning. They're going to grow up to be what you are, not what you tell them to be. But we need to have a sexual purity in our home, and it should be taught. The sec second thing tonight, and the seventh thing in our list of ten that should be practiced and should be taught is a sensibleness about money. A sensibleness about money. Now, I said this morning that just two weeks ago I heard that credit card debt in America was $12 trillion now. That's not counting debt for a car. That's not in talk about debts for houses. That's just talking about what they call expendables on a credit card, $12 trillion. Somewhere along the line, uh, it's not being taught. But before we get there, I asked you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. Go there. I for forgot where I told you. Chapter 4, and notice with me verse number 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The word sanctification means to be made holy, how you're made holy that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, in this verse where it says possess his vessel, it has two applications. First application, it would be to your own body. Number two, if this were speaking only to men, it would be his wife. That's another application. A husband should know how to possess his wife, to take care of his wife. And here, the context could be either. But let's go with the first one. To possess his vessel or his body in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. In other words, Christians have no business living like godless pagans, like people that do not know God, don't want anything to know with God. We're supposed to live in a total different way, and the way is here to possess your vessel in sanctification. In other words, if you have a sexual urge, satisfy it with your wife and only with your wife, and make sure that when you do that, that you do it the right way. But sexual purity, now I'm done with that. Sensibleness about money. Now the Bible teaches much about money. It teaches us in the book of Matthew that we're to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth, right? And the whole philosophy of America is buy, 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 spend, spend, spend. I mean, that's what our whole economy is geared about, and that's the reason why presidents are elected if the economy is doing good most of the time. You remember a statement that Bill Clinton made years ago when he was campaigning for his second term, and somebody asked him about how he's going to get elected, he looked at him and said, it's the economy, stupid. Why? Because the Americans, most Americans, are, are concerned more about money than anything else. I have personally seen people that on most occasions seem to be spiritual and faithful until financial problems come into their home, and all of a sudden it's like they can't trust God for anything. I mean, God has let them down. No, God has not let you down. 
God's never, nowhere in this book does He promise for you and me to be rich. Nowhere. He promises in this book to provide our needs. But He never promised to meet an American dream. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, Pastor Camp, you sound downright un-American. I'm more than glad to be an American. I'm more than glad to live in a country that if you do have a good work ethic, you can probably make more money than you need. And you can have money to, to live far better lifestyle than probably your mom and daddy did. I mean, I have a whole lot more, more than my mom and daddy had. And it's part of the American way. And yes, it is a part of God's blessing, and I'm more than thankful for that. But it's also because I've tried my best, and I'm thankful that I have a wife that is more frugal with money than I am, and we have tried to obey biblical principle when it comes not to spend more than you earn. We don't, we don't buy more than we can pay for at the end of the month. I have credit cards. They're paid off at the end of every month. If I can't pay it at the end of the month, I do without it until I can. That's the biblical way. It's like I hit a brick wall right here now, folks. <laughs> Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Believe it or not, I could preach at least four hours on what the Bible says about biblical finance. And I have done that on more than one occasion. But Matthew chapter 6 is just a simple Three, three verses here that I want to read. Chapter 6, verse number 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. You know, the book of James teaches that men with a whole lot of treasures are one of these days going to cry because their money has been corrupted. The book of Revelation teaches the same truth. Money, for money's sake, this makes people miserable. Money that is at God's disposal for God to tap into any time that he would look. You know, I've learned this down through the years. God doesn't always use all the money that's at your fingertips. He just wants you to put it at his fingertips. Changes are he's going to let you keep most of it. That's just God's way, but he wants access to it. Why? He might want to use you to bless somebody else. But lay up your treasures in heaven, and that's where your heart's going to be, not on things of the earth, not, not more cars, not more houses, not more this and not more that. But, Lord, here, you use this. By the way, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to work to have, to give to those that have need. That's in the book of Ephesians. Work so you have to help people that have need, not so you can have a plush, easy lifestyle. And your family needs to know that. Your children need to know that. Your ch don't, by the way, this is just free. I want him to charge you for this. Don't give your kids everything. Make them work for some things. Give them chores to do. 
the wall's still there. <laughs> but a sensibleness about money. The eighth thing I want, that every family needs to know and needs to live and needs to teach to their kids, listen to this, a social behavior. How to interact and how to respect other people. I have met people and said hello to them, and they just look at me and walk right past me, just like I'm not there. You know, I can be downright cantankerous sometimes. When I have met people like that and said hello, and they, <laughs> and they pay me no attention, I run back and get in front of them and come by them again. Hello. <laughs> Why? I, I I've almost, almost want to force them to say something to me. And kids, when our kids were little, and somebody would speak to them, and uh, we had one daughter that when people said something to her, she'd get in behind my wife's skirt, you know, sort of peek around her backside. And uh, that young one had to learn the lesson. She got more than one spanking for not responding, speaking back, respecting people. And we've raised a whole generation where it's like if they don't want to speak, they don't have to. That's disrespectful for everybody else. By the way, it's not teaching them how to interact. It's not teaching them how, when they get older, to even witness the people for the cause of Christ. If you're not respectful and kind for people, you can keep your mouth shut when it comes to giving them the gospel because they're not going to respond to you. Would you want to respond to somebody that wouldn't even be respectful and kind to you? And I have seen at Ambassador when I taught there, student after student after student, when they came in, they wouldn't speak to them. Anybody wouldn't say a word. And like I said, I was a little rough on them, I guess, because they were going to speak. I was going to make them speak. I'd stop them on the sidewalk. I'd stop them in the hall, and I would stand there and wouldn't let them leave until they talked to me. Why? Somewhere along the line, somebody forgot to teach them how to interact and how to respect other people. And the Bible's what did Christ do? Christ talked to everybody that he came in, talk with, in contact with except one person. There's only one person in, in Christ's life that he didn't talk to. And it tells us that this person asked him all kind of questions, and he answered them not a word. Why? Because Herod had sealed his doom when he cut John the Baptist's head off. Christ never talked to that man. Everybody else he talked to, everybody else he loved, everybody else he drew to himself. And it was because of his relationship, kindness, and talking and stuff that made a difference. And by the way, the same will be true for you. If you'll talk, if you'll interact, if you'll respect, talk to people, it will make a big difference when it comes time to present the gospel. Number nine tonight. Turn with me back to 1 Thessalonians. There are a number of verses in Thessalonians. Uh, we'll look at a few in 1 Thessalonians and a number in 2 Thessalonians as well when it comes to this next point. The ninth thing that we should live and should teach our children is satisfaction of responsibilities. Satisfaction of responsibilities. Second, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 9. For you remember, brethren, how our labor and travail... For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Now here Paul was talking about 
what he did so you wouldn't, quote, take advantage of somebody else. Even though as an apostle, his position of authority as an apostle, he could have told this church, hey, hey you need to provide for my needs. But he didn't do that. He fulfilled a responsibility, and that was take, take care of himself. As a teacher, I was a teacher in the public school for 10 years, then an ambassador for 25 years. And one thing that as a teacher has always bugged me is when I would give an assignment, give them a syllabus on the first day of class, so they've known for months that an assignment was due, and then a due date comes, and oh, I, I don't have it, Pastor Camp. I forgot about it, Pastor Camp. Oh, I didn't start in time. I mean, you can hear every, you know, dog ate my notes, excuse under the sun. What, what they were saying is they didn't have enough character to finish their responsibility, to do their responsibility. When our kids were little, one thing that they got taught was we give you a job to do, you better finish it. If, you know, we gave them a simple, and we started when they were little, when they were little, with simple jobs. I'm talking about two simple jobs. And if they didn't finish that simple job, they got instruction. I mean, we walked them through step by step what we wanted them to do, and then we'd let them try it. Now, if they tried and failed, that was instruction. If they started and then quit because they got distracted, went over here, started doing something else, they got disciplined. And they were brought back, and they were reminded. Did you hear me? I said they were reminded to stay on until they finished the job. Why? God expects us to finish the job. He wants us to finish what we start. If it's working, as Paul says here in this passage of Scripture, or look in chapter 4, in the same 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, notice verse number 11. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business. And to do your own business. In other words, take care of your business. Don't expect somebody else to do it. Here was, here was something my mom taught me. Pick up your clothes. Put them where they belong. A number of years ago, we were visiting one of our daughters. And we came in, and we were sitting in the living room, and the husband came in from work. He put his shoes down, he took his shoes off and just set them down in the middle of the floor, and that's left them there. And, and I forgot it. I got up, started to go to the kitchen, and I stumbled over his shoes. I just reached down, got his shoes, and picked and put them in his closet. Didn't say a word. That's all I did. Next day, came in, did the same thing. He took his shoes off, put them right in the middle of the floor. And I didn't say a word. I just got up and got them, put them in his closet. Third day, he came in and, and took his shoes off. And as soon as he set them down, he sat down, he jumped up, got him, and took them and put them in the closet. <laughs> he got the message. I didn't say a word. And I think every single husband needs to learn to help their wives by putting up their clothes, putting up their shoes. Come on, Teresa, say amen. <laughs> I was I was just wanting some woman to say amen to that. And by the way, why uh, hus husbands and wives 
Teach your children to do that. Don't let your kids come in and take their shoes off, and then you be the one that picks them up and put them up. Teach your kids to put them up. That's a fulfilling of a responsibility. They can start young. When they, when they eat, if they're eating on the couch, that plate and that cup better not be sitting there. When you get through eating it, take and put it in the sink or in the dishwasher. Simple things. It's a fulfillment of responsibility. It sure makes the home go easier, too, by the way. By the way, when it comes time for them to get a job, they'll get their own time. My dad taught me, son, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. And you better not be the first one to clock out. If I'd have been the first one in line to clock out, and by the way, my first job I worked where my dad worked, I would have got, even at 19 years of age, I'd have got the skin tuck off of me. I mean, I say the first, that's the first job in a company. I'd worked on the farm my entire life. But Daddy would have taken the skin off of me if I'd have been the first one. He said, you're not the first one. And there's so, finish the job. Do it in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord. Notice 2 Thessalonians, please, chapter 3. Train your children to work. My daddy always told me on the farm, son, don't worry about the work, uh, dirt. It'll wash off. It'll wash off. But train your kids to work. Chapter 3, verse number 11. For we hear that there are some that walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Fulfillment, a satisfaction of a responsibility. I'll look at, you don't have to turn, you've been turning. Let me turn to another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse number 40. Here's an over-encompassed principle that covers a lot of things. It says, let all things be done decently and in order. I know that that verse applies directly to the local church. The local church, of all places, things should be done decently and in order. But guess what? Your home should be done decently and in order. You should teach your kids to do things decently and in order. It's a part of satisfaction of responsibility. Your room should be neat. It shouldn't be chaotic. A chaotic life in, a, in, a, in an environment creates for a chaotic life up here. Satisfaction of responsibility. And quickly, last one, I won't even ask you to turn because this principle is all throughout Scripture. Selflessness must be lived, not selfishness. Selflessness, by the way, is the only way that you're going to fulfill the other nine. If you are a selfish person, you will not do the other nine. Because as a selfish person, you simply want everything done for you. It's all about you. It's not about your family. It's not about loving them. It's not about the Lord and loving Him. It's all about you. And I promise you, you, if you're a selfish person, will make everybody around you miserable. Because that's what selfish people do. They've always got to have a drama session. 
They've always got to create an environment where people see and hear and perform for them. No, the life of a Christian is a life of a servant. And I can promise you this. A servant did not have times of drama. He would not have been a servant long. You say, well, that would be good. He could have been, no, he'd have been dead. We don't understand servanthood. The Bible teaches that as a Christian, we're to follow the example of Christ. And he said, I did not come to be ministered to. I came to minister. That means that he lived a selfless life. Remember, he's the one that gave his life so ours could be saved. He's the one that laid down his life so he could be the example of us laying down our lives for other people. Especially, most importantly, our own families. And as the book of Galatians says, we're to do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. The brothers and sisters that's the members of this church, that's who the, the membership of this church should strive to be a blessing to and be selfless with more than anybody else. Yes, we're to be selfless for all men, it said, but especially the household of faith. And who more close to your household of faith is it than your wife and your children or your husband and your children or your mom and dad as children? Selflessness, satisfaction of responsibilities, social behavior, strength of emotions, submission to authority, service to God, and spousal duties. I promise you, if you will live and teach those ten areas, your life will be pleasing to others, most importantly pleasing to God, and will be a great, great blessing to everybody you come in contact with. I challenge you tonight to meditate on these 10 areas. I challenge you tonight to ask God to show you where you're weak in these 10 areas and ask God for strength to put these 10 areas into your life and into the life of your family so it can change your family. If it changes your family, you've changed the next generation. Somebody was talking about it, grandparents down here. A number of years ago, I decided I was going to do a little research on my family tree because I didn't know anything about them. I found out that my grandfather had died when my daddy was 14 months old. And at that point, my daddy was the least spiritual person out of seven generations that I researched. I found out that in every generation of my daddy's family that I had Christian men that had taught their sons to be strong Christians. Many of them were preachers. And when I found that out, it thrilled my soul. And I determined in my heart and my life that I wanted to affect the next generation of my life. I'm now teaching my, teasing my grandkids, would you hurry up and get married so I can affect my great-grandkids? Caleb's now 19. Cody's brother's 21. Kyle, his oldest brother, will turn 23 this summer. 
I have a 19-year-old granddaughter, and I teased her as well. Uh, Caleb, don't waste much more time. I want some great-grandkids to affect before I die. I want to teach the biblical principles to them so I can affect 150 years, maybe more. And it would sure be nice if 150 years from now, some great-great-great-grandson research a family tree and find out that they had a great-great-grandfather that was a godly man that affected their life. They may never know him, but they may one day research and find out, hey, I had a godly relative that affected my life. Wouldn't that be neat? To get to glory, and when they get to glory, you get to meet, and you get to meet because of the effect that you made in somebody's life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight the difference that the truth of Scripture makes in a person's life. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for your word changing me from what I was raised. Thank you for giving me a godly wife and godly girls that are raising grandkids to love you and to serve you. I pray, dear God, that great-grandkids would grow up to know you and to serve you. And I pray, dear God, that your word that has been preached today would make an everlasting effect upon the hearts and lives of families that are here, not just the parents that are now parents, but the young people here that's going to be parents in the next 10 years. I pray, dear God, that these things would, that you would take these thoughts and work in their minds and work in their hearts and help them to see that they can live a godly life no matter what they've known now. So, Lord, we thank you for that we don't have to live a life of sin. We don't have to live what's been lived. We can live what your word says. And thank you for giving us that opportunity and that grace to do so. So would you bless these folk? Help them to rely upon your grace. Help them to rely upon your word. And may their lives be a life of peace and harmony and blessing because of it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.